0: Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermon Podcast. Be sure to keep watching immediately after the sermon for Postscript, a weekly podcast with in-depth content and answers to your questions submitted during the sermon. You can also find it on iTunes or at faithbridge.org postscript.
1: Welcome, glad that you are here, whether you're in Center Court West or Center Court East or at the Woodlands Campus. Or online, worshiping somewhere near or far, we're just glad that you're here today. Welcome, and it's always a treat when one of our favorites, Ben Stewart, brings us God's Word, and he's going to do that today in a great way about God's Word. So you're going to want to take some notes on this one, so get out your pencil uh, and your little note sheet, and let's welcome Ben as he comes to preach to us now. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks. <laughs> All right. Well, howdy. howdy. Hey, it's good to see you guys. Uh, if you have a Bible, uh, I want to read to you a couple of verses from Second Peter chapter 1. So if you want to follow along, that's where we'll be, Second Peter chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, uh, raise a hand and they'll hand you one. And uh, if you don't have one and don't want one, then you can just listen because I'm going to read it and we'll... Uh, We'll pray after that and then uh, jump in. So, Second Peter uh, chapter one, uh, beginning in verse 16, uh, says this. <clears throat> for we did not, this is Peter speaking by the way, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we were making known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Uh, let me pray for us. Lord, thanks for this day. Thanks for this moment to gather around your word. I, I do pray you would help us this morning think clearly about wh- what is it to be to have communication with our maker. And I pray God, you would give us some information today that would help us think rightly about what it is we're looking at here. And if these words truly are the, the words of God. And, and God, I pray that in the midst of getting more information, I do pray you would stir affections. I pray you would birth in us conviction about what we are holding in our hands and comfort that we can know it's a communique from our maker. And so help us, God, think clearly and uh, respond rightly. And uh, I just pray you would bless this time. It would help us. Uh, and I wanna ask you guys, if you're willing to take a minute and, and you pray and ask him that. Say, Lord, please teach me uh, today. Uh, and then if you would, please pray for me that the Lord would use me and I'd be helpful to you. Well, Father, we love you and we trust you. Use this time and we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Ken asked me if I would ask and address a question that uh, maybe you've asked or people you love have asked and it's a question about the Bible. And the question is, how can we have any confidence that the book you hold in your lap now contains the same words that they wrote back then? And it's a good question. You say, Ben, Jesus lived in the first century. We're now in the 21st century. That's a lot of centuries. So how can we have any confidence that what they wrote back then made it through the centuries and is now what we're holding now. I mean, hasn't the Bible been through countless revisions and countless changes and didn't Constantine adapt it in the fourth century when he was rising to power? And then when King James got a hold of it, oh my gosh, it was a free-for-all. So Ben, how can you have any confidence that what we're reading now even remotely resembles the words and deeds of a guy named Jesus thousands of years ago? That's a good question. And some of you have maybe asked that question or struggle with that question or someone that you love struggles with that question. And it's a good ones to ask. How do we know? How can we have any confidence? The words haven't changed and the meaning hasn't changed. And often what's presented in this midst of this struggle is an image of Bible transmission that's kind of like the telephone game. I don't know if you played that game as a kid where, you know, you would line up little kids in a line and how do you play it? The kid on the front of the line comes up with a sentence and whispers it in this kid's ear, and that kid whispers it to the next kid, and on and on it goes, and how does the telephone game end? By the time it gets to the last kid, he stands up and says the sentence, and usually the words and the meaning are a distant memory, right, from what was originally spoken. I remember when I played in elementary school, when I sat at the front of the line, I came up with a sentence about sandwiches, and by the time it got to the end of the sentence, it had become a cuss word, and I got in trouble with a teacher, right? <laughs> because the words had changed and their meaning had changed. And some of us look at that and go, well, Ben, how can you have any confidence that's not what happened here? And the reality is that this issue of textual transmission has been pushed into the public square a lot, really over the last 20 years. Like I remember when I was in college, I had a friend that was a a new believer in Jesus Christ. And he called me in a panic because around this time every year, Easter magazines like Time and Newsweek put out articles about Jesus. And this particular year was about the Jesus Seminar. Uh, the Jesus Seminar was a collection of biblical scholars and you can still read their books. They're in Barnes and Noble. Guys like Dominic Crossan and Robert Funk, Marcus Borg, these men had gotten together and dubbed themselves the Jesus Seminar. And they read through the gospels line by line and voted on whether or not these different verses were authentic, meaning go back to a historical figure named Jesus. And they would vote by throwing colored beads into a bucket. Red meant, yes, these words really were the words of Jesus. Pink meant those weren't his words, but the general concept was from Jesus. Gray, black means no, it's not connected to the historical person Jesus. And by the time that Jesus' seminar was done, under their opinion, only 18% of the four Gospels in the New Testament were considered historically accurate one verse from the gospel of John. And it wasn't even a relevant one. It was like, and Jesus was like, what? And they were like, yeah, okay, that one was legit. The rest is kind of made up, right? (laughs) And he read this article and he was like, Ben, there's scholars. Like, what am I supposed to do? And he was panicking. I gave my life to this Jesus. And now these guys are saying that we don't have his actual words and deeds. Or several years ago, the book Da Vinci Code came out. Uh, and I don't know how many of you read it or even care about it or think about it again, but I remember when it came out, uh, people were quoting it to me everywhere because there's a a scholar in this fictional book by Dan Brown who says at one point, and I'll quote him, the Bible has evolved through countless translations, editions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of this book. And I remember sitting around a campfire with my dad's friends And them having all read The Da Vinci Code, that was their introduction to textual criticism, and they were saying, it makes a lot of sense to me. Why would we think these are the words of God? Or even more recently, uh, on The Daily Show, John Stewart, or the Colbert Report, just several, maybe five, six, seven years ago, a scholar by the name of Bart Ehrman was featured three times in a five-year period. And with Bart Ehrman, you're dealing with something far more serious than these last two I mentioned the Jesus Seminar has been dismissed a bit. Um, you know, they called themselves the premier biblical scholars on Jesus, with scholars such as the producer of *Striptease*, starring Demi Moore. So you're like, maybe that title's a bit inflated, right? So some people are not as into what the Jesus Seminar was doing because they were voting based on their personal convictions. Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code. No historian takes very seriously, even liberal scholars who don't believe the Bible's the word of God or Jesus, is the son of God. They don't believe any of that. Even liberal historians say, yeah, Dan Brown's book is fiction, all of it, uh, including that which uh, claims to be history. Nobody really believes the Da Vinci Code accurately presents how we got our Bible. But with Bart Ehrman, you have a, a bona fide textual critic. Textual critics are people who study the ancient manuscripts that have survived through the centuries and see where the differences in wordings are and try to discern what the original said. And Bart Ehrman is a legitimate uh, textual critic. And he wrote a book, he's written several popular level books over the last few years. His most popular was entitled Misquoting Jesus, who changed the Bible and why. And as he was interviewed by uh, John Stewart and uh, Colbert, he said, not only do we not have the originals, that is the original writings of the New Testament, not only do we not have the originals, we don't have first copies of the originals. And that's true. We don't even have copies of the copies of the originals or copies of the copies of the copies of originals. Now there's no way he can know that. And yet he said that statement and then the very next statement he made in this public venue was, so how can we have any confidence in the reliability of this text, right? And then he went on to say in those interviews, we have more textual variants in existing New Testament manuscripts than we do words. A variant is where two different ancient manuscripts would disagree. He says, we have more variants than words. And as he said that, by the end of this interview, I remember on the Colbert Report, they were laughing at sort of the uh, uh, idiocy of thinking Jesus was God and that he died for you. you Now, what do you say to that? How does that make you feel? Well, I would say the attitude you get from a Bart Ehrman and people like him is one like total despair, would be the word for it. There's no way at this point we can know what a guy named Jesus legitimately thought twenty centuries ago, right? And so my professors warned against that total despair, which we'll talk about in a minute, but they also warned against the opposite extreme called like a an ignorant certainty. Like if the King James Bible was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. And you're like Wait a second, right? Uh, So you don't want to be this guy, but you don't got to be that guy. So you go, well, then Ben, where are we? Well, we are with more notes than time, but let me ask and answer three questions this morning. And they're this. Number one is an issue of quantity. How many scribal alterations are there? How many places in the ancient manuscripts of the New Testament that we still have, how many differences are there? Textual critics count them right, down to the very number. Uh, One of the most premier textual critics alive today teaches at the seminary I graduated from. They count every time there's a little textual variant. These guys are colossal nerds (laughs) that the church is grateful for. So you go, uh, how many, what's the quantity we're talking about? That's question number one. Number two is quality. What kind of textual variations are we talking about here? Because that matters. And then number three is orthodoxy. What theological beliefs are dependent upon textually suspect passages. Like are there some old copies of the Bible that say Jesus died on the cross and others that say no he didn't? Like what's at stake in this conversation? And before I go any further, let me just say this. I'm getting the vast majority of what I'm going to share, content and format, is from Professor Daniel B. Wallace. He is the executive director of the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. He's a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, and he's the author of Greek Grammar Beyond the Basics, a great book if you're having trouble sleeping, a massive tome about Greek grammar. Two-thirds of seminaries in this country use his book to study the language of Greek. He literally wrote the book on Greek. And he's written several uh, popular level books too. So I would highly recommend che- checking out Daniel B. Wallace. But let's dive in and see how far we can get today. And the preliminary question I want to ask is this, do we have the original New Testament documents? now? And the answer is no, we don't. All 27 books of the New Testament were written to the churches. And by the end of the second century. So you're talking like 199. Uh, By the end of the second century AD, they had likely all turned to dust. And that's because they were written on papyrus. Papyrus is uh, paper, or it's not paper, but it's parchment made from smashing together of of reeds, of plants. Uh, It has the consistency of like a grocery bag. So they survived for maybe 100 years, maybe 200 years, right? Uh, And then they would disintegrate, right? We actually have papyrus today. But it really just comes from three places. Egypt, Qumran, around the Dead Sea, and Herculaneum at the base of uh, Mount Vesuvius, right? Extremely dry climates, papyrus has survived. But in a normal climate, it's pretty brittle stuff. It disappears. So we don't have the original writings, John's handwriting. We have copies, right? And they were copied many times as they went through history. That's where the telephone game breaks apart. It works on the assumption that it's only whispered once and then disappears. No, this document would have been copied many times and many times over and could be referred back to over and over again. And so we have many copies, right? And they were copied many times before they disappeared. But here's the other reality. Before they disappeared, all the manuscripts that we have disagree with one another. Two of our earliest manuscripts of the New Testament disagree about six to 10 times per chapter. There's 260 chapters in the New Testament That means between two of our oldest and most reliable New Testament documents, there's about 2,000 differences, 2,000, right? When you start adding other ancient Greek manuscripts, we've discovered that you get more variances. Thus, you get a whole career field called textual criticism, right? Where they evaluate these things. So number one, What's the quantity of variants? How many little differences between the ancient manuscripts are there out there, Ben? Well, words in the Greek New Testament, there's around 140,000. Actually, there's exactly 138,162. How do I know that number? Nerds. <laughs> 140,000 words in the Greek New Testament. How many variants are there? Little changes, differences between manuscripts. 400,000. 140,000 words. 400,000 variants. If you're running the math on that, that's about 2.5 variants per word. There are more variants than words. Now, if we stop the conversation there, that's a pretty discouraging place to stop it. And let me say this, Bart Ehrman says this in every single interview. What he doesn't address next is the quality of those variants, and we'll get to those. But he likes to mention that because it sounds a little scary, but let me tell you something they don't say in those moments, and that is this. The reason we have so many textual variants is because we have so many copies of the manuscripts. If you only had one copy of an ancient document, you'd have no variants because you get one copy. If you get a second copy, this is before the printing press. Some guy had to write it by hand. You would get little differences, spelling differences, little mistake, word left out, letter left out, right? If you copied the entire New Testament by hand, you'd probably mess up once or twice, right? right? And so the reality is a document the size of the New Testament, 2,000 differences would make about sense. So how do we get 400,000? Well, the reality is because we've discovered so many Ancient manuscripts. We have what biblical scholars call an embarrassment of riches. So, before the printing press, how many ancient handwritten copies of the New Testament do we have in existence today? As of February, 5,839. 5,839. Now, most of them don't have all of the New Testament. Only 1% does. About 59 of them are copies of every word of the New Testament. But that doesn't mean they're all tiny little fragments either. The average size is 550 pages. That's a lot, right? That's just in Greek, the language the Bible was written in. We have 5,800 Greek manuscripts, ancient Greek manuscripts. But in the second century, Jesus lived in the first century. In the second century, Latin became the language of the day because... The capital was moved to Constantinople, right? It was Istanbul, now it's Constantinople, it's Constantinople, not Istanbul, everybody got that? Right? That's When the capital moved there of Rome, Latin became the lingua franca, the language of the day. And so the Bible was then copied into Latin and we have over 10,000 ancient copies of the Bible in Latin. And even if we didn't have those, we have the New Testament translated into other languages in that day, like Coptic or Syriac or Ethiopian or Armenian. Arabic, Hebrew, Aramaic. If you add all those, you get another 10,000 more. So we have 25,000 ancient manuscripts in existence today. But let's say we lost them all. Some guy was like, I lost every single copy of the ancient New Testament. Let's say he lost them all. Would we still be completely in the dark about the Greek New Testament? No, because there are prophets alive today that have it all memorized, nerds. And... (laughs) Because we have what's called the early church fathers. These are the guys that that were the first Christian bishops and elders and teachers, and they would quote the New Testament. So like Ignatius, who died in 107 AD, right? The second century, Ignatius quotes Matthew. Uh, There's an organization in Germany that counts biblical quotations in the writings of early church fathers. They are currently up over a million, up over a million. There's 8,000 verses in the New Testament. We have over a million quotations in the church fathers. So even if we lost every ancient copy of the Bible, you could easily put it together just with the quotes from the fathers, right? Now, some of you go, Ben, wow, this is fascinating, but I'm totally lost. Well, let me try to help you <laughs> with some comparative information, right? You go, 5,800 Greek, ancient Greek manuscripts handwritten on the Bible, 25,000 ancient manuscripts in different languages? Ben, is that a lot? I mean, can you compare it to something? Yes. So let me pick a couple guys. Don't try to write their names down. Just sit back and enjoy. Uh, Livy, Tacitus, and Suetonius are three ancient scholars from the first century AD. Much of what you and I know about ancient Rome comes from these three men, right? Thucydides and Herodotus from, from the fifth century BC, and they were Greek historians. Much of what we know about ancient Greece is from these... So let's collect all their works together and say, how many ancient copies do we have from the men on whose writings we base most of what we know about ancient Rome and ancient Greece? Livy, there are 27 surviving manuscripts. He wrote 140 volumes. We have 35 of them, 27 surviving manuscripts. Tacitus, who many argue is the most important Roman historian we have, How many copies do we have? Three. And the oldest copy we have is from 800 years after Tacitus died. Suetonius, same thing, 800-year gap, right? Thucydides and Herodotus, Herodotus, we have a few slivers from the first century. It's several hundred years before we get more. So if we add up all five of those guys, you get less than 400 ancient Documents upon which we base most of our knowledge of ancient Rome and ancient Greece. 400. And the oldest you get comes from 300 years after those men lived. 300 year gap, less than 400 copies. The New Testament, almost 6,000 copies in Greek alone, 25,000 ancient copies. And the oldest they get is within one to two decades of the life of the apostles. 300 years, one to two decades. Less than 400, 25,000. So how many ancient copies do we have, Ben? The technical term is bunches. (laughs) Bunches. And you go, how does this help us? Because the more you see that, when you see little spelling errors now, what happens is we have grouped them. There's the Alexandrian text types, the Byzantine. We get to see if this guy misspelled this word and that guy got it from there, it helps you trace back these streams of translation as been translated by hand. It gets you closer to the original, not farther away, right? If you took the average classical Greek author, author and said, how many of their works do we have? The average classical Greek author, how many surviving manuscripts do we have? You get about 20, 20. If we were to stack them, how high would that go? About four feet, right? If you were to stack what we have in the New Testament, how high would it go? About a mile, about a mile. We have an unbelievable amount of ancient resources from this book unbelievable when you start to look at the math. It stands alone in a very interesting place. Now, what about the dates of those manuscripts? Well, there's a lot we could say, but let me just tell you one fun story. Uh, In 1934, we discovered P-52. When you find papyrus, those ancient little pieces, P-52, uh, you name them. You name them P-something. So P-52 is one we found in 1934. 90 years before that, 90 years before that, F.C. Bauer was a German scholar at the University of Tübingen. Bauer had studied under Hegel. Hegel, who, you know, came up with the Hegelian dialectic. You all love it. You know where there's the thesis, (laughs) antithesis, synthesis. That's the Hegelian dialectic. And Bauer had been taught that. And so Bauer applied it to the Bible and he said, the apostle Peter was the thesis. Then the apostle Paul came along and the antithesis, he was the Jewish Jesus, he was the Gentile Jesus and the synthesis was the book of Acts and then the full synthesis was the gospel of John. And so based on this theory, he said the gospel of John could not have been written earlier than AD 160. So Jesus lived around AD 30. He says the gospel of John could not have been written until about 130 years later. It's not an eyewitness account. It's an adaptation over time. And that view was predominant in academic circles for 90 years. Until a grad student was rummaging around among the ancient manuscripts found in the John Rylands Library in Manchester. And he found a little slip of papyrus about the size of a credit card. And as he translated it, he said, this looks like the Gospel of John on both sides. And so he sent it to three of the leading papyrologists at the time to study the paper. How old is this? And they all independently wrote back to him and said this should not be dated any later than A.D. 150, possibly as early as A.D. 100, or Deisman said even as early as A.D. 90. So if I've lost you, let's be clear. Bauer said the original Gospel of John could not have been written before AD 160. This young man found a copy that the leading papyrologists of the day said this copy should be dated at AD 100. So did the original come in 160? We just found a copy from 100. Now I'm no copyologist, (laughs) but what my brain tells me is, shouldn't a copy come after the original? And so what happened? 90 years of German scholarship just went up in flames, right? Wow. Why? Because this copy was from around A.D. 90. And you say, what was happening back then? I don't know. Guys like John were running around. <laughs> we're getting real close. The King James Version of your Bible was translated into English in 1611. It was based upon seven Greek manuscripts, the earliest of which was from the 12th century. Seven Greek manuscripts were the foundation of the King James Bible that was translated in 1611, uh, and the oldest was from the 12th century. Your modern English translation that you're holding now is built upon over 1,000 times more ancient Greek manuscripts, and the oldest one is from the second century. So King James, you had seven from the 12th century. Now you have 25,000 dating as far back as the second century. So you tell me, are we telephoning game further away from the original, or are we getting closer to it? We're right there, we're right there. So you go, okay, Ben. What about the quality of variants? Because some of you are still shaken up by the fact that you said there are variants in these ancient texts. You go, well Ben, what quality of variants are we talking about here? There's four kinds, four groups of variants in these ancient manuscripts. The first group is called spelling differences. Because with each variant, as they're copied by hand, you get two manuscripts, they're gonna be a little bit different. And what happens is there's words like the name John. In Greek, the name John can be spelled with one N or two Ns. It's a preference thing, like how English people spell color with the word U in it, or letter U, right? It's a preference. It's weird, but it's a preference and it's fine, right? (laughs) New Testament manuscripts have those. Not spelling errors, even I'm talking about, just differences, like a second new at the end of John. How many of our 400,000 variants are spelling differences? 70%, 70%. They don't touch meaning. Let me say something. Bart Ehrman never says that in an interview. And he knows that, but he doesn't say it. Why? Because it doesn't sell books. He says, we got more variance than we do words. He doesn't say, the vast majority are spelling differences that have no influence on meaning. Why? Because then you wouldn't run out and buy misquoting Jesus. And I don't respect that, because he knows better than that. Spelling differences, 70%. Group number two are alterations that can't even be translated into English. Why? Because Greek is a highly inflected language. You go, what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. In Greek, word order is not that particular. So you can say something like Jesus loves Paul in English. That's typically how we do it. Subject, verb, complement. Jesus loves Paul, right? You could say that same sentence in Greek, but you can move the words around because you don't determine the subject by where it is in the sentence. You determine it by the little endings they put on the word. So you can say Jesus loves Paul in Greek any multitude of ways. And you can also add in the definite article in different places in Greek, and you can translate it or not, it's a preference issue. My Greek professor did his entire doctoral dissertation on the definite article, the word the, right? <laughs> Nerds. So if you wanted to say Jesus loves Paul in Greek, you could write, Jesus loves Paul, Jesus loves the Paul, the Jesus loves Paul, the Jesus loves the Paul, Paul Jesus loves, the Paul Jesus loves, Paul the Jesus loves, the Paul the Jesus loves. You could keep doing that. There are over 500 ways you could write that sentence in Greek, and when we translate it into English, it will always mean Jesus loves Paul. That's how inflected Greek is. It's an extremely precise, nuanced little language that that simple sentence could be written that many ways. When you understand that about Greek, 400,000 variants starts to sound pretty remarkably small. And so your second group is little alterations that can't even be translated into other languages. They're that insignificant. Group three, are changes that are meaningful but not viable, meaning they have a poor chance of being authentic. You go, what does that mean? Meaningful but not viable, what does that mean? Well, let me give you an example of a meaningful variant that's not viable. First Thessalonians 2, seven. First Thessalonians 2, seven, Paul says, we were gentle among you, if you're reading the NIV, but the TNIV says we were like little children among you. And that's a legitimate text critical problem. That is actually one text critics Debate, because the word gentle or little children, what did Paul say? We were gentle among you or we were like little children among you? What is it? The difficulty is in Greek, there's only a difference of one letter between those two words, apioi and napioi, right? What's tricky is the word before it is agonathane, right? So is it agonathane apioi or and napioi? Did you catch it? It's tricky. That's a real problem, right? There's a 14th century document that says agonathan hippioi. We were like horses among you. That's called a meaningful variant. Why is it called meaningful? Because the word hippioid is a real word, it's the word horses. But it's not viable, why? Because none of the other thousands upon thousands of documents we have says hippioid, that's obviously a scribe that was uh, missing it or something, right? So meaningful, not viable, meaning nobody thinks that's actually what it said. Those three camps, spelling differences, untranslatable alterations, meaningful but not viable, comprise 99% of your 400,000 variants, 99%. Bart Ehrman never says that in an interview. Why didn't he say that? Well, because after he stood with Jon Stewart and said, there's more variants than there are words. Whoever knows, Jon Stewart goes, wow, that is one hell of a book and held up his book, which is a weird thing to say about a book about God he did. And within 48 hours, that book shot to number one on Amazon. Bart Ehrman knows better. He does. He's been presented that by other people. He even wrote much later in the appendices, some things I'll read you in a minute, that he knows better. Uh, So I think he's being purposely dishonest. That's very clear. And I don't respect that at all because that hurts people. And I find that hateful. Group number four is the smallest group, and that is meaningful and viable. That's the 1% we we debate about. And I won't have a chance to get into a lot of them now. We'll do them on the postscript thing in a minute. But let me give you one example of meaningful and viable. It's from Revelation 13, 18. Revelation 13, 18 says, let the one who has insight calculate the beast's number for it is the number of a man and his number is 666, right? We all know that. Even those of you that don't like coming to the Bible, if I said, what's the number of the beast? You'd be like, 666, right? Because you've heard heavy metal music at some point. That's the number of the beast from Revelation 13, 18. In 1834, our second most important manuscript on the book of Revelation from the 5th century was discovered by Constantine von Tischendorf. Yes, that's his name. And it's personally my favorite name of a textual critic, right? Constantine von Tischendorf. I love him. Cool guy. Found it, worked with it, helped clean it up, because it had been damaged. And then over the years, it began to get translated. In 1970, some men were able to discern some words that had been hidden on this little edge or whatever, and it said in Revelation 13, 18, that the number of the beast was not 666, but 616. I remember Dan Wallace saying that and going, now, most scholars believe 666 is the number of the beast, 616 is uh, you know, the neighbor of the beast. And I thought, that's so funny. And I remember the first time I said it, so when nobody laughed, I was like, I guess that's a little seminary humor. I just thought the neighbor of the beast was like the funniest thing I'd ever heard. I don't know. <laughs> so he said, nobody took it really seriously because it was just this one document, this one little piece, it said 616 instead of 666. We all know 666 is the number of the beast, right? Uh, until Oxford University, about 20 years ago. in uh, thousands of papyri that they're still sifting and going through, 17 New Testament papyri were found, one of them. Uh, had nine chapters of the book of Revelation. And there was this little scrap they found near it that had, it was about the size of a postage stamp. And it had Revelation 13, 18 on it. And Dan Wallace went to go investigate that. They had put it under a plate of glass with a white sheet behind it. And uh, he said, okay, you can read the front. Have you read the back? And they said, no. And he said, well, who's come here to evaluate this? Piece of papyri. And they said, counting you? I said, yeah. And they said, one. But this is what he does all day. So he read it. It is currently the oldest copy of Revelation we have. And it says 616. Dun, 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 right? Oh no, seven tons of popular Christian fiction just went up in flames, right? All these heavy metal, uh, metal album art is ruined, right? This isn't the number of the beast, it's some random number, right? Uh, what are we gonna do, right? Truth is, there's still some debate. That, that's a serious textual issue, is it 616? Six, 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 six? That matters, right? But here's the deal, no church, no seminary, no creed says, I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and maker of earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten son, and the number of the beast, day is six, six, eight. So here's the answer to the third question. What orthodox Christian beliefs are dependent upon subjects, texts with textual issues? In Dan Brown's book, his character said, until that moment in history, meaning the Council of Nicaea in 325, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless. He says that nobody who knew Jesus thought he was God. Constantine just changed it all of a sudden in the fourth century to consolidate power. Is that what happened? Are there passages where that happened? Let me show you P66, P66, Papyrus 66. This is from the second century, right? And uh, it's the Gospel of John. I know you all know that, but what you may not know is it's from about AD 150. So about 150 years before the Council of Nicaea, right? And I'd like to read it together. So read along with me. (laughs) Or read along in your Bible if you want, because that's John 1, 1 at the top. And so you look at your English version. I'll read that version from AD 150 and you can see how much it's changed over time. in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Reads just like yours. Why? Because it hadn't changed. The people who knew him knew there's nobody like this guy and they wrote down, this wasn't a normal man, this was the word of God and he became flesh and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory and even Bart Ehrman in his book, Misquoting Jesus, they include an interview in the appendices. How often do you read the appendices of a book? And someone asked him in the appendices, and he said, and I'll quote, essential Christian belief is not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. He titles his book, Misquoting Jesus, and then when asked directly, are any Christian doctrines affected by the textual variants you address? And he said, not one, not one. That's not the impression he gives in interviews because that wouldn't sell any books. And I don't think I'm being cruel, I think I'm pointing out a criticism I, I hope he'll take seriously because I, I don't think what he's doing is good. So you go, well Ben, what about the Old Testament? Well we don't have a lot of time for that but let me tell you one story. <laughs> For a long time, the oldest copies we had of the Old Testament were from about A.D. 1000, A.D. 1000. That was where a lot of them were from around that time. And then in the 1940s, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. The Dead Sea Scrolls dated from about one A.D., first century A.D., first century B.C. So think about that. The oldest copies we had for a long time were from A.D. 1000 of the Old Testament, and then all of a sudden, a little boy herding goats discovers a copy from a thousand years earlier. Talk about a verification of the telephone game! We get to run back in the line, one thousand years, and see how much did it change over time. Let me read to you from R. Laird Harris, the scholar who was comparing Isaiah 38 through 66. He says the text is extremely close to the Masoretic text. A comparison of Isaiah 53 shows that only 17 letters differ. 10 of them are merely differences of spelling, like our honor or honor with a U, and produce no change in the meaning at all. Four more are very minor differences, such as the presence of a conjunction, which is often a matter of style. The other three are the Hebrew word for light, which is added after they shall see in verse 11. Out of 166 words in this chapter, only that one word is in question and it doesn't change the sense of the passage at all. This is typical of the entire manuscript. Why does that matter? Because my hope is that you'll see that over the centuries, God wanted to preserve the words of Isaiah who centuries before Jesus wrote, he will be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief and as one whom men hide their faces. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his stripes we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray, everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That over centuries God preserved his word so that you could know I am sending my son to be perfect where you are not, to be a sacrifice for sin that by his stripes we are healed. And the more I study the transmission of the Bible through history, the more I marvel at what I see as a supernatural caretaking of this message. Why? Because God wants you to know you are beautiful in the image of God, you are broken because of sin. And God's solution is a savior. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us and was a perfect sacrifice on our behalf. And God preserved this word so that when you sit down and read it, you can hear the very heart of God that says, I sent a hero for you and his name is Jesus. That message was worth preserving and he's done it so that you and I sitting here today, thousands of years later, might know him. And my hope this morning is that you would come to know him. And as you look into his word, you would do it with the confidence of knowing my God has spoken to me about the lover of my soul, my hero, the King, Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord, I want to thank you that you have the power to communicate with us and you have enough love for us to want to. And the word of God became flesh. Jesus Christ dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. And then God, yes, you spoke to Peter. He heard your voice on the mountain, but he says, then you gave us something more sure, the prophetic word, that we have the scripture cared for through the centuries, meticulously copied by those willing to lay their lives down to transmit to us the message that we can know God through his son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, that you love us enough to preserve that message that we might know that no one here is beyond saving. No one here is beyond the love of God, that you came to bear our burden, to take away the penalty for our sin to extend to us grace and forgiveness to all who would call out to the name of Jesus. And I pray even today, Lord, there'd be people who stretch out their hand to him and say, I trust you, I'm going with you. And Lord, I pray as we sit down and read our Bibles, may we marvel that we are reading the very mind and heart of our maker. And may we be affected by it. And the world see a people who have been changed because they treasure the words of their beloved king. Thank you, God, and we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.
0: Welcome to Postscript. Here we hope to answer your questions and help you dig deeper into the messages and sermons at FaithBridge by talking with the teacher of the day. Hey, my name is Hannah Connor, and thank you for watching Postscript. I'm here with Ben Stewart, and he's just preached a message on, has the Bible been corrupted? We've got a ton of questions, so let's go Great. ahead and jump into them. Come on. First one, um, in light of what we've just heard, the question we've got over and over is, which version of the Bible is best? Which do you use and like?
1: Yeah, um, well, I would say translation, other than version, you know, just to be precise about it just uh, because we're translating the text. It's not someone kind of coming up with their own version of it, but um, the question becomes uh, there's a scale of um, what they call on one end dynamic equivalence and on one end word for word. So like word for word translations try to take every Greek word as much as you can and put that word in English. But that can make it kind of wooden sometimes. Dynamic equivalent tries to grab Thought for thought. Mm. So they'll translate a passage and go, What's that basically saying in English? and bring it across. Neither are bad. Um, so, on that spectrum, like the message would be way over on dynamic equivalence. They don't even call it a translation, he calls it a paraphrase, right? right? Mm-hmm. Um, I like reading, like, The message is great or The Voice. Those are cool just kind of for reading. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm doing real studying, my preference would be the ESV, English Standard Version. Mm-hmm or the New American Standard NAS, or the NET version, although the NET's pretty wooden, so ESV, NAS. But then I also like the, the NIV stands probably right in the middle, so mm-hmm. the NIV's really good as well. Um, and so any of those would be great, and I think you could grab all those. So for me, I, I read them all, mm-hmm. and because usually it's people trying to find different English words to help bring across mm-hmm. the Greek or Hebrew word, and that helps you understand it. So those are all great.
0: It's good. Yeah. Uh, that's such a big deal to so many of us. How do we navigate the differences on that? Is that something like, this is my, the hill that I die on about a translation?
1: No, I mean, I I think it's, um, you know, again, sometimes it's helpful to read something like, like I remember for me, um, trying to really study every word of the Bible. I'm like, I need a, a, version that's really going for that. So the, the net, the New English Translation, has a lot of textual notes, and I need that. But sometimes when you want to just sit and read poetry, the, the NIV will grab the poetry of Psalms better. You know.
0: So it's about purpose.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's a great way to say that. Thank you. Yeah, so, so I, I don't know that you have to say, well, there's just, it's this one and the rest are garbage. You go, no, no, no. There's a lot of them that different scholars got in the room and did them. So NIV, NAS... ESV, I think those are great. New King James is good, too. Uh, So I don't know that there needs to be a war about those, uh, truthfully. Yeah.
0: Um, We got a lot of questions from people who were clearly feeling like, man, I don't, hearing this makes me feel like I need to know more. I need to go deeper. Questions about canon. A lot of things we might not be able to get into in this time. Can you give us some resources?
1: Yeah. Well, Daniel B. Wallace is, if you're, more into like the language and how was the language translated he's written books about textual transmission kinda what I just did Mm -hmm. so you can go to Amazon type in his name you can go to danielbwallace.com you can go to the Center for the Study of New Testament manuscripts I think it's CSNTM.org yeah and uh, for more history questions Mm -hmm. like what Why did these books make it into the Bible? Why these didn't? That's not necessarily like a translation issue. That's more like what happened in history. So like uh, a Justo Gonzalez's book, The Story of Christianity, would help you with that. Or um, even a systematic theology book could help you with that too, like Wayne Grudem's book. Uh, He'll have a section on bibliology, the study of the Bible. So I would try Wayne Grudem's Systematic or Justo Gonzalez's Story of Christianity. And just dive in, man. Those will be great. Yeah.
0: So if you just chew that up and spit it out. Come, come back on, to you more for more. Go for it. Yeah, yeah. Tell us about some of the more meaningful and viable difference between these an- ancient texts. You alluded to that in your sermon a bit.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, totally. It's, it's. Um, there's a handful. Like I said, 1%. And the two biggest, I mean, oh. biggest in terms of like size, number of words would be what's often called the longer ending of mark mm-hmm. and then that passage in john 7 about the woman caught in adultery right. and so a lot of english translations like if you looked now in your bible it would say the earliest and most reliable transcripts do not include blah, 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 you mm-hmm. know and so scholars for honestly over well over a century from conservative to liberal scholars have looked at those and looked at there's a first john 5 we don't even put in English Bibles because those three people look and say these were not a part of the original Gospels. Mm-hmm. They weren't. The, the longer ending of Mark is, you can tell when you read it, kind of a pulling of other Gospels mm-hmm. and so none of our earliest, most reliable manuscripts have that one. I think that really was people trying to, because if you think about when the early books of the Bible were passed around, you weren't necessarily given them all, And so if you were just handed Mark, Mark ends with a big cliffhanger. Mm -hmm. And so you would have them in ancient documents, even like spaced out towards the bottom. Mm -hmm. Someone would write a brief ending. The women did go tell everybody and it worked out great. Mm -hmm. But they weren't necessarily saying, I'm going to sneak in this inspired portion. And so that's why I think biblical scholars are saying, no, that part's not. Mark didn't write that. Mm -hmm. The woman caught in adultery. That one has a lot longer history. Like that document, that story is very old, Mm -hmm. but historically it was not stuck where it is in John. And so that really occupies its own space of people wanting to hold on to that story or that moment, mm-hmm. but go, but it it's not in the four. And so even some old um, copyists of the Bible would put it like in the margin of going like, we don't want to, we want you to know this story, but we don't know where to put, like it doesn't go here. Yeah. So let's write it over here. Mm-hmm. And then people are like, ah, it's so great. Let's stick it in. But scholars from the, from from very early on, I've said, this was not originally where you see it in John. So my personal view, those should be pulled out because I think it confuses people. So I don't teach the longer ending of Mark because I'm with the vast majority of New Testament scholars. Mark didn't write it. Uh, there's other little bitty ones, but they're really small. But it's interesting, like uh, Bart Ehrman in his book will... Uh, He co-wrote with his mentor, I pulled it out, if you really have trouble sleeping at night, you can read the text of the New Testament by Metzger and Ehrman. Um, It is painstaking detail. Metzger, Ehrman's um, mentor, Mm -hmm. um, you can read his testimony in Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. It was interesting, when Bart Ehrman's book came out, a writer in the Washington Post said, this guy peered so deeply into the ancient uh, copies of the New Testament until he saw that they were false. So the assumption there is if you really study this seriously, you'll realize it's not true. Mm-hmm. But that was like some journalist saying that yeah. in Washington. Metzger was interviewed by Strobel, and he said, you've been peering into the depths of this. Has this weakened your faith? And he says, no, it's strengthened it. He said, it's remarkable what you run into when you start really running into this. Mm-hmm. So Airman's doubts, I don't think are really at the root of them, and I'm not his counselor, but rooted in textual issues. Mm-hmm. They're rooted in, I think, some deeper um, difficulties in his life. But in his book, he'll mention some of these as real bombshells, mm-hmm. but they're really not. Mm-hmm. So like in Mark one, there's debate on, does it say Jesus became angry? Is the word angry in there. Mm-hmm. And Ehrman, in his book will say, that changes your whole view of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Is, was Jesus an angry man? That's what he wrote in his book. And you're like, Well, multiple times in Mark 3, Mark 10, Jesus is called angry. Mm -hmm. So Jesus gets angry all through Mark. So whether the word angry is in Mark 1 or not doesn't affect our view of Jesus at all. Mm -hmm. Or one of the big ones he'll camp in on is Matthew 24, where Jesus says, No one, not the angels, nor the Son of Man, knows when the end will come. Several translations of Matthew stick in, nor the Son of Man but it's, it's not in the Most Reliable Ones of Matthew. And Ehrman mentions it half a dozen times in his book of saying, um, oh my gosh, so does he or does he not know when the end will come? This completely changes our picture of Jesus. And you're like, well, if you read Mark, there's no textual debate over the fact that Jesus absolutely says, the Son of Man doesn't know when the end will come. But Ehrman never mentions that Mark passage, which that's basic Bible study. Why? Because it doesn't support his thesis. Mm. So that's why like I, I pray for him, I want good for him in life, but I get frustrated because he's been called on that. It's not it's not um uh it's not good scholarship to do that. Right. Uh and uh so it's frustrating to me, but uh, I agree with his mentor and Metzger's other proteges like Dan Wallace that the more you study this, the more you see it's absolutely remarkable uh how well this has been preserved. So Those are some of your biggest ones with a bunch of me just rambling in it. But there you go. That's good. That's really helpful.
0: Yeah. Um, And I think what would also be helpful is if you can give us some guidance on like how do we enter into conversations like this productively? Like what should our goal be when we're talking to a brother or sister in Christ about this kind of minutia of the faith or an unbeliever?
1: Yeah, I think it's hard to hold all this in your mind. Mm -hmm. So some people do that. They're like, oh my gosh, I got to have all this loaded up. So the next time my friend goes, well, how do you even know that's Jesus? And they're like, oh, uh, Tischendorf and 4th St. Anna. like, it's very hard to hold all that in your mind. Mm -hmm. So I don't think you have to. I think if someone says to you, well, how do you even know you have what was written back Mm -hmm. then? Um, What I would do is just not get angry. You would just say, you know what, man? There's some people who've, you would be amazed if you scratched the surface, how deep the scholarship goes. Mm-hmm. Daryl Bach and Daniel Wallace wrote a book, Dethroning Jesus, which talks a lot about these modern questions people are asking. Mm-hmm. I would say, hey, you need to check out Daniel Wallace's book, Dethroning Jesus, because it's going to answer your questions. But then I would spin it back to them of going, I want to challenge you. Like, no one changed history more than Jesus Christ. He claimed he was God. A third of the planet says they agree with that. You've got to deal with that man. And if you're wondering, well, is this an accurate presentation of him or not? Do you think that's worth reading a book about? Like this guy changed history. Everyone will say, more than any other human being, I really want to challenge you, man. You need to go on a journey to figure out who this guy is. Like don't, don't miss that opportunity. And so that's where I would put it on them. Because what happened with a lot of people is they say, no, I don't want to. And you go, okay, the issue isn't textual reliability. Right. The issue is I don't want anyone telling me what to do. Mm. But see, now you've made it about the hard issue rather than being on the defensive about 11th century documents. Like, There's great books they can read about that mm. if they want to. Right. But I would keep trying to steer the conversation back to the person of Jesus. He's the center point of history. And he's all that matters at the end of the day is what are you doing with this man? And so when someone tells me, well, I don't know if we have an accurate presentation of him. To me, that's just, that's translation for, I don't know what I'm talking about. You know, and you're like, okay, so I'm not mad at you. But you're like, hey, man, uh, I would challenge you to go on a journey because I think you'll be surprised by what you find. And a lot of people, when they go on that journey, they find far more than they expected. And like C.S. Lewis, they're surprised by joy. So... That's, that's where I would go. That's great. Yeah.
0: Bring it back to Jesus every time. Come on. There it All is. Right. Well, thanks for sticking around, Ben. Thanks for watching. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us for Postscript. Help us keep the podcast interactive by submitting your questions during the morning services. Learn more at faithbridge.org postscript.